This is a special edition of Mayo Clinic Talks, released in partnership with Mayo Clinic Press. Welcome to the Rise for Equity podcast. In this series, we'll be talking to leading physicians, scientists, and innovators about what it's going to take to transform healthcare for a more just, more equitable future. I'm Nicole Fanoyam Hara, your host on the Rise for Equity podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kim Barbell Johnson and Doug Morell. Today we're discussing community engagement in healthcare research, the impacts of diversifying decentralized clinical trials, and the ways in which Dr. Barbell Johnson and Doug continue to advance equity in their own work at Mayo and beyond. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So you both work really closely in community engagement and in research. And before we dive more deeply into that, Dr. Barbara Johnson, could you share with us just a bit more about why you went into medicine? And Doug, what brought you to a career in community engagement in healthcare? I'm a family physician by training, and I spent a year in a dedicated cancer research community facing trial development. It's been the most rewarding part of my entire year, but I started this journey pretty much like I am right now very passionate um, as a West Indian uh, little girl based in St. Thomas in the Caribbean. I was um, I was aware of, of inequities and economic inequities and social inequities and in other ways. And in deciding to pursue a career in medicine, I attended Hampton University, went to medical school, came to Mayo for training. I always felt that I had a responsibility to those who on whose shoulders I stood and to those who I knew were, were getting differently cared for, differently served in medicine. Having a life of relative privilege in the Caribbean, I knew that it was my responsibility as my family also thought to really be our brother's keepers. So that's what brought me to medicine. That's what has kept me satisfied in family medicine and for the last 15 years in clinical trials, recognizing that um, where clinical trials are concerned and where advances in medicine are concerned, that the train was really on its way and that the only way that those who were underserved in this space clinically would actually be on par for, for survivorship, for therapy, for early screening and detection was for those of us who actually had earned a voice um, among our communities who were trusted, particularly after COVID, to be more aggressive and involved and intentional about how to do this. So when given the opportunity to return to Mayo and invited to do this in the cancer research space, I jumped at it. Um, simply because I knew I would be aligned with incredible people who were um, also interested and passionate, dedicated, and equipped to do that. Doug and I came on board about the same time, and I was proven right when I met Doug that we were doing this across the enterprise together. And so it's a pleasure um, to, to be able to do this work and honor to be able to do this work. And you, Doug? For me, I took a more non-traditional route to Mayo Clinic and healthcare in general. I've had over 20 years of professional experience serving public-facing organizations that basically are engaging the community for some shared goal or some shared vision. And so from being a Navy officer to being an executive pastor, churches, to serving in both large NGO nonprofits, as well as smaller nonprofits, uh, all of them had one thing in common, which was it was a vital part of their mission to engage the communities in which they were a part of the fabric. 
And so I learned both up close and personal, but also from a, a very strategic standpoint, what the commonalities were among that. And the community, I believe, is, is an essential solution to address that. And so to be a part of the work, and I mean, hey, if you're going to be a part of this work, why not come to Mayo Clinic? And so uh, delighted to be a part of what's happening here and our efforts uh, to, you know, not uh, go to the community and not uh, do something for the community, but to partner with them, learn from them, uh, and build together. And so, I mean, that's just an, ex that was an exciting proposition that I could not say no to. Well, thank you both. You demonstrate such a powerful and lifelong commitment in each of your stories to understanding that community, to understanding that people aren't being cared for in the same way in a lot of different spaces. And, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit more about what that looks like specifically in your work. But as you know, community engagement is such a big term with a lot of meanings. How would you each define community engagement in the healthcare and medical research context? Nicole, a lot of times when we talk about community engagement, particularly in this space, our pictures don't match. And it's very important for me for our pictures to match so we're talking about the same thing. Uh, we can all look at an elephant from many different places, and we're still looking at an elephant, but we describe it very differently. And so in the space of, of, of healthcare, particularly as it relates to the research, you know, when I think about community engagement, it is our ability to partner with the community in a bi-directional way so that we are addressing community health issues. And these are community health issues that the community has identified as priorities and needs within the community. And so engaging them in specifically for that uh, so that they are a part of the solution, uh, but also give vital feedback uh, to us on that. And so from, from my lens, you know, uh, I think a lot of times we say, okay, anything we do in the community is engaging the community. And I would say that's a continue. You know, we, we do outreach to the community, um, but engagement is a little deeper. It's a deeper relational connection. And here for us, particularly in the research field, that's, that's important that it is continuous, that it is deep, and that it is sustainable. I echo everything that Doug says. As a clinician, I have a slightly different perspective that I do add. All of my life for 25 years, I've believed in shared decision-making, whether it was, how are you going to treat your diabetes? How are you going to treat your hypertension? Of course, as the expert trained in medicine, I had the, the how and with what, but I didn't, I never went home with my patients, at least not often, <laughs> unless they were relatives. And I had the opportunity, you know, often 20 times a day to have shared decision-making conversations. And so this was kind of a, an, an, not a, a far stretch from that same concept of, of engaging with community meant for me shared decision-making, but with the population in our cohort in the Cancer Center catchment area in this particular case. And as Doug said, it's a, it's a deeper, it's deeper than outreach. In fact, it involves some in-reach as well as outreach. It involves when I was a, 
family physician treating patients one-on-one, it it involved me being prepared, me being understanding, me being able to check my biases at the door, me preparing myself before I entered into that sacred space to take care of a patient. It is absolutely no different when I do nine catchment areas in Florida or however many catchment uh, counties in in our other areas across the enterprise, it's the same principle. And I think that that in-reach and that outreach for a trusted uh, platform from which to start a conversation where we address those things that need to be addressed and and get some shared decision making when we address how to um, move forward to decrease some of the barriers and the burdens of diseases um, within these communities. Thank you. I love that idea of both inreach and outreach and, and sort of how those two together can really do some powerful work. And Doug, the way that you spoke about partnerships and sort of deepening, it's not outreach, it's engagement and how to do that in a way that is shared in a way that is about trust, both of you spoke about. And honestly, community engagement, things like clinical trials have been met with a lot of mistrust. And this mistrust, of course, has a history here in the United States among our marginalized communities, as well as in global health contexts. Can you walk us through some of your understanding of the roots of this mistrust in um, medical research? There are many reasons. Obviously, we talk about these social determinants. We talk about the historic things that have happened in trials. We, we, We know now that we have not been the greatest stewards of every community and of which we've served and we have not earned the trust of all communities um, equilaterally uh, racially ethnically in particular and so now having to go back and and rebuild bridges uh, build bridges to to walk to earn that trust is is one of the things that we're now finding ourselves challenged to do we first need to take ownership, take responsibility and accountability, and then we need to change the narrative. We need to change the narrative, not by changing the history, but trying to identify those spaces where we have come this far, where we have had those who've earned um, some trust, who have walked alongside those who have been well-meaning allies in this space to advance uh, science for, for, for all people. And, and, what I feel that we're now doing is really trying to do both to address history, but also to excite a community about the things that need, that we have been doing, and then to get that buy-in, to get that understanding uh, so that we can move forward together. So I, I, I believe that the trust issues are still uh, one of our biggest hurdles, if not the biggest hurdle in this space. And again, we're not going to get through that space with a single conversation, but it it involves a science of trust building, the science of understanding human behavior, and and just the personal commitment to wanting to do better so that we all move forward. And and I think Doug shares some of that, but probably adds a different perspective as well. Yeah, for me, you know, I think the challenge for me is that if we want to engage communities as if there's no mistrust or if there's no history, And so I think you have to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And I think, you know, before we go and talk about all the great things that we're going to build together, we have to repair the cracks in the foundation. And so the cracks in the foundation are very important. That's the mistrust. And so how do we do that? And it takes time. Any relationship, even in our personal relationships, if there is a mistrust or a lack of trust, it takes time to repair that, right? And so I, I think, you know, particularly in our world today, we want to speed past that. We want to speed past that. And so it's very important that we take that time 
that we show up even when we are not looking to getting that, you know, we begin to look at our relationships with the community as not being transactional, but being transformative for the community health. And so the way that we begin to do that is begin to spend time. And so we begin to try to identify what's important to the community. And even when I'm finding this, even in research in our role, even when there's things that we don't necessarily do, if there are people that we can connect the community to, uh, teams within Mayo that, that are doing those things, we can make the warm handoff. And so that's relational. We do that for each other. Uh, we do that, you know, hey, I know someone that does that. I can make that introduction for you. We need to do that same thing with the community. And so when we do that, those are the type of things that build trust. When they see our face in the crowd and they begin to know our face, they will eventually turn to us one day and say, hey, don't you work for Mayo Clinic? Can we talk to you about X? And that's sometimes the door that you need to begin to build again. But to try to build a cathedral on a foundation that is you know, falling apart, I think it's just foolish. And so uh, I think if we can approach it in a better manner with a little more intentionality about the way we're building that relationship, I think organic things can happen with the relationship. I think it cannot be, you know, a quid pro quo kind of relationship all the time that I ask you a question, here's what we identify, and here's a very linear way of moving through this path. It's more contextual. It's more gritty than that. Like Doug says, we have to sit in these spaces and we have to live in these spaces. Sometimes it's in the silence, not even in the questioning, not even in the answering. We have to just sit in these spaces and, and, and understand even for ourselves, maybe bring some of the conversation, bring some of the answers and, and get some feedback on those things, because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So it is, I, I really love that we continue to talk about going into communities, asking communities, coming back and partnering with communities as if it's like an A to B to C connection. But I know that those of us who are gathered in this space right now understand that it's, it is so not linear, right? And it is, and it is so more complicated and, and so much more dimensional than that. Thank you for that, both of your perspectives on that, this idea of responsibility and the stewardship that you then have to take take that information and the questions and the voices and do something about that, as well as this really important perspective that we are all parts of communities. You are parts of communities. You know, you have your roles at Mayo Clinic and in other spaces, and then you have your role in the community as well. And the work that that role does in building relationship and the importance of that and the messiness. I think sometimes, again, you know, I think we look on paper and we think, you know, you have. I'm sure you both have to fill out things for all of your projects around outcomes and measures and, you know, everything is on a grid somewhere. But that we know that in reality, that's not how that actually works and that it's messy and there's vulnerability involved and, you know, comfort and discomfort in being in spaces and continuing to ask, like you said, Dr. Barbell Johnson, and that asking is important and continuing to ask from that basis of trust, because as we know, representation matters and beyond that, voices matter. And so I want to move to talking a little bit about specifically some of that work around diversifying clinical trials and how how you work with community engagement around that. So I guess to start, we know that clinical trials are often a part of medical research, and clinical trial is a term that many may be familiar with, but we've also been hearing a lot more about decentralized clinical trials, or DCT. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that differs from traditional clinical trials? 
So it's one of the most exciting things that have um, been on my uh, metrics <laughs> in terms of the work that I've been able to do and be accountable for um, as the director for community clinical trials administration here at the Florida campus. At Mayo Clinic, uh, we've moved from the term decentralized clinical trials generically, and we've embraced it as clinical trials without walls because we really want to make sure that this is a culture change. And so we've embraced this decentralized aspect of making sure that we understand that clinical trials can be without walls. And that is revolutionary for the entire industry. And at Mayo Clinic, this has been an ongoing conversation as we've seen the needs to uh, increase representation and to decrease the barriers for inclusion in clinical trials. The clinical trial space is very regimented and filled with lots of regulation. So in a way that still honors all of the things that we tell our patients, you know, trust us because we have oversight, trust us because, you know, there are all these checks and balances in place. We can do that now outside of the walls of, say, a, a Mayo Clinic. We can do that by taking the informed consent process through telephonic channels to explain patients uh, what the trials are and to give them opportunities to enroll in trials. Once that happens, we have opportunities now that we can take uh, processes that are important for clinical trials, such as laboratory um, and biospecimen collection, where we have opportunities and partnerships with brick and mortar spaces and communities across the country where we can have orders that are sent there, but the information is sent back to Mayo in a regimented, regulated way, or that we can have people come into the homes for the where the social barriers may be transportation. And we are using vendors to go into the patient home, do the collection according to our protocols so that you can participate in trials where that would have ordinarily been a barrier. There are now devices that we can use as we're using in cancer care without wall and in hospital care, we are introducing more devices so that we can get the quality of the information because we never want to sacrifice safety, efficacy, and quality for convenience, right? So this concept, as much as it's a growing concept, it's a slow and growing concept because we want to do it right and we want to do it with protected health information still being protected, the convenience not being uh, the thing that we gain and lose something else. And so those are some of the nuances in terms of what this clinical trial without walls space can look like. And I hear the excitement in your voice, <laughs> excited, and um, it's, it's very palpable. And I think, you know, as, as you're talking, I mean, it's it sounds so expansive. I loved your notes and around, you know, still, you know, maintaining the, you know, not sacrificing all of the regulations and all of the safety and all of the rigor of a traditional clinical trial in this space and sort of innovating in that space while you're doing it. And community really does take on this really sort of expansive meaning, new meaning, right? Communities that we often think of as sort of bound by sort of physical or geographical or maybe some other physical aspects are now sort of unbounded in this clinical trials without walls approach. And I, I neglected to mention the, the clinician, the community being the community of medical partners in this space as well. So beyond just individual patients or, or populations uh, that may be interested in clinical trials, most people within our community uh, have a medical home somewhere. So just imagine being able to um, foster and facilitate these trials with trusted partners uh, where, um, where you can go to your routine clinician's office and be participating in a clinical trial because of some master service agreement that's in place because you're in your 
family physician, internal medicine physician, gynecologist is part of the collaborating scientists in the clinical trial. So all of that is part of this clinical trials without wall ecosystem that we're trying to build. And again, we're building it slowly because while we are, we know that we can't be zero risk. One thing Mayo Clinic is going to be as, as our best. And so it, it really involves vetting the right partners. It involves making sure that the, the, the culture and the community and the touch points are pretty similar and that we, we, we are a good match, you know, that we're marrying the right partners because we want our Mayo Clinic service to be the same service, the same quality, independent of where that is being collected. There are so many nuances where understanding uh, what we talked about earlier, listening, understanding, so that we just don't come up with, oh, here's this great platform, we decentralize. All of these nuances are important, understanding who worships on what day, you know, when, when are those things important. It's how, what, what are the centralized processes going to look like with our partners from, from how they present physically, what car they drive to the uh, protocols in which they engage with the patient for the scientific aspect of the clinical trial. So it's, again, just such a, a rich you know, in the weeds kind of space, but I, I, I love living in the weeds because I get to understand exactly what, what this would look like and what success would ultimately look like for the patient. And I, I think in the weeds is often where transformation <laughs> happens, I think, and so much of what you're talking about too is really understanding. I mean, it, it it's in the weeds because it's such it's such a detailed nuance level, as you said, around cultural and social and interpersonal, personal sort of relationships. From both of your perspectives, what what is a transformational sort of perspective around what it means to diversify for both the on the clinician and the research end of it and also for the community? What is it? What is the benefit of diversifying for the research? What is the best benefit of diversifying for the community? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. You know, I agree. I, I, you know, when I was an undergrad many, many years ago, when people would talk about diversity, the example I will always use is I would go, okay, let's take a carton of eggs and let's paint all the eggs a different color. We could say that the carton of eggs are diverse because they're different colors. But me and you know that the background is the same, the environment is the same, everything else about those eggs are identical except for the color. And so I think when we say diversity, we are meaning so many more things than, than we have been limited to in our society. And so for me, you know, when I think about diversity, particularly in this space, you know, what does that look like, not just from uh, diversity in the communities that we're working with, the patients that we're working with, but what does it also look for the providers to be diverse? What does it look like for, you know, the navigators, the nurses, when I, as a person of color, walk into a Mayo Clinic, do I see anybody that looks like me besides someone who may be sitting next to me in the waiting room? You know, are there the physicians that I see going to be diverse? And so I think that becomes a challenge because we like to check that box off and say, okay, well, yes, we have diversity in these areas, but let's extend that. You know, when I'm talking to an individual do we have a similar enough background to where they understand without me having to go into explicit detail what certain things mean? And so I, I think having diversity, of course, ethnically and racially is important, but I think it's also very important for us to have diversity as it relates to background, environment, understanding. And so 
all those things are important. And then when you look at the many different gaps that we have from a disparity standpoint, uh, I think that we can't do anything but try uh, to close those gaps because uh, we're not going to get the diversity we're looking for if we don't address those gaps as well. And so everything from screening to preventative care to even our science-based public policy, all of those things factor into a, a widening gap that we're seeing in health disparities. And if we want to really address the diversity issue, we have to be able to address those as well. So what Doug says is that, you know, it is it is a work. It's not even about where Mayo Clinic serves. It's about the world population. That diversity is just beyond what we can see, but it does involve you know, who's in the room, who's in the waiting room. And and there has to be some connection there as well, right? So not because you look like me, but there is, Mayo is often citing the, the need for us to feel belong. But in addition to that, do we feel valued? Do we feel valued when we're in these spaces? Do we, do we value the benefit of having a contribution to the educational construct of the communities in which our patients serve? Because it's in, in developing and equalizing education opportunities. Now, are we in the business of education? Probably not beyond the School of Health Sciences, but it is so connected. And I think that's what, that's where I always stop. I always say, you know, particularly because I am Caribbean and I didn't grow up with like a race. I was West Indian, right? So I, it, I went to Hampton, I had to check a box and I, I own that box. However, I do recognize that everything that's within me is within me. And I think I, I serve the community in which I serve, understanding that people come in with their own genetic admixture and that that genetic admixture may not be what they look like, but I need to understand that that is who they are in order to understand how to move forward with this thing that we do in precision medicine. So we've moved from this population health space, let's get everybody in the population, and yet we're advancing precision medicine. Well, we can't get to the preciseness of what works for everyone unless everyone is at the table. And so that's a part of this diversity that I'm I'm at. It, it, for packaging aside, let's get to where you are and, re and re understand that if your genetic admixture is not represented in the things that I'm assessing, if I'm not thinking about those things, I'm never going to diagnose those things. I'm never going to be able to, to include you. Uh, my mentor, big brother in medicine, passed all 10 days ago from a condition called myelofibrosis, which if you look up the demographics and the ethnicities, it's not something that Black men die from, that they get diagnosed with. Yet we have someone who wasn't packaged like that, went to Mayo to get diagnosed because at least Mayo thought about it and that's how he got the diagnosis, but ultimately died from the complications. And 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 because it's an aggressive disease, it, it is what it is. But what if, what if we had more diversity in that space to understand how to do induction chemotherapy with the genetic admixture represented, how to, how to watch our safety measures, kidney functions, so that all of the complications from that are monitored with the understanding and the breadth and the scope of diversity of epigenetics um, and genetics in that space. And I think that's kind of what diversity means to me. It's not just about that. And so because of the uh, Dr. Bill Cody's who shoulder I will co continue to stand on as, as his mentee, that is why I'm in this space because we are both brown, but we're both brown different, right? But it's not 
not about our brownness. It's not about metrics that the NCI puts to say that you must have 10% of your analytic cases, et cetera, represented. This is about the end game. This is about our North as a mission of Mayo Clinic, our North in doing right and making sure that we are doing the same thing the same way for all people. And that is where I enter the space. And that's how I consider um, our success, uh, that we be successful in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you both for those powerful, powerful <laughs> insights. I'm just amazing. I, I can to both of you all day. And, you know, th this idea that we're, our identities are so much more than the box or the egg carton, Doug. I mean, that they're they're expansive, they're intersectional. They are about all of the things that make us up genetically, epigenetically, as you said, Dr. Barbell Johnson, and all of the social things in our experiences and our lives, right? And what does that look like in, in these medical spaces, in the research, and in, just in our lives and in our community? All of those things are part of that ecosystem that you both have so so deeply and, and wonderfully sort of described in our time together today. Is there anything in, in particular that you want to make sure that we get in front of our listeners and our audience um, outside of what we just covered? There's a couple of things that I would want to mention. One, when we talk about particularly engaging uh, the community for the purpose of research, you know, for me, that primarily shows up in two different ways. Community outreach and engagement uh, component of our cancer center as well as community engaged research, which is a part of our uh, Center for Clinical and Translational Science. And so uh, there's two tools that we're using with researchers that are really beginning to pick up uh, momentum. One is called the Community Engagement Studio, uh, which is just, it's a framework for the researcher to be able to work directly with community members, patients, caregivers, other individuals to get insight from them uh, to either enhance the study design, enhance how it's implemented, or how they uh, release those results back to the community. And so you assemble this group of what they call community experts, which are people who have some type of insight around this particular topic. And then you connect them with the researcher, consider it. Some people will say, well, it's more like a focus group. I would say it's like a focus group on steroids. And so it's very significant, but the idea is that it starts this bi-directional conversation between the researcher and the community, uh, which they can continue to build on. And so uh, community engagement studios are beginning to pick up. We conducted 10 uh, in, in this last year, and we'll probably look to do significantly more uh, in 2024. And so that's one program. The other tool is what is called the citizen sciences program. Citizen Sciences Program is where you take uh, community members who are uh, interested in volunteering and you run them through training to train them about clinical trials. It's a 10-week training period. And once they complete that, then they can be assigned to individual study teams to provide insight to that researcher around that particular study ongoing. And so that's something that we're seeing pick up. We just had 12 individuals complete, complete that this quarter, and we're looking to grow that in the future. Thank you much. Thank you so much for sharing those two opportunities and, and really wonderful projects. Dr. Barbell Johnson, did you have any closing insights you wanted to share? I would be remiss if I didn't say that this is a culture change for, for the medical community and Mayo Clinic is in line and we're doing, and we're so committed. We have the, uh, we have our money where our mouths are. We, we are doing the hard work, um, but it's, it's hard work. And I think we have to recognize that it's hard work. And it also requires, um, while I said some things are not sequential, 
in, in this case, some of us may need to go back to the bot to the beginning. In this case, some of us may need to go back to those tools that the community outreach and engagement department has prepared that are online in the clinical trial space to understand the kinds of ways that we want to start thinking about even the way in which we develop language for protocols, the way in which we, we check ourselves to say, is that extra step necessary? Would I want to be compensated for the time that it takes? I know it's going to benefit you and benefit science, but what about the families that are waiting with patients? Are we divide, de, de, designing trials that actually are just comprehensive in that space? So I just want to, again, say that this is about community outreach engagement. It is about translational science, but it's about protocol monitoring review. It's about disease groups. It's about all of us who actually want to to bring science forward to be inclusive. And just as I'm passionate about this, I don't expect my daughter and my son to be passionate, nor my colleagues to be the same, to have the same passions that I do. But in terms of responsibility to the community, we should have that same north. And while there may be rare diseases on occasions, even in the rare disease space, we must make sure that we check ourselves to make sure that we are being completely uh, comprehensive in how we're approaching this. I was married to a pilot and, and the one thing that I loved was I would hear these stories about aviate, navigate, communicate, aviate, navigate, communicate. We can tell you all the stuff last, but let's make sure we're doing the aviation and the navigation correctly first. Also, let's make sure that even though you've been on that plane a million times, every single time you get on the plane, you're going to check all of your safety equipment because the lives of the passengers that you're now about to transport and your life is at risk. So let's do the same thing as consistently as our aviation colleagues so that we are being consistent, we're being safe, we're being equitable, and we're not taking anything for granted. So it is a, a, an ecosystem of clinical trials. And if we, if we build that system, it will be inclusive. It will be diverse uh, by default. And that's where I hope that Doug and I will have other conversations with you down the road, because now we'll be talking about other things, because we will normalize about diversity inclusion. It won't happen tomorrow, but um, we're here for the ride, right, Doug? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Barbell Johnson and Doug. You've given us such a dynamic overview of how community-engaged research and clinical trials have grown and changed, and really the reparative and restorative work of ensuring that communication and trust are built and rebuilt. And all of that, given the long history of discrimination and mistrust um, that you all um, discussed and, and shared with us today, and then understanding that the continued impacts of this history and listening to communities and moving forward to educate, empower, transform is going to take time and it's going to take deep partnership. It's going to take what you just spoke about, Dr. Barbell Johnson, all of that comprehensive rigor, the scientific sort of innovation and the cultural change within the medical community. But that seems to be what's next on the horizon for this work. And we so appreciate your work in this role and all of your insights today and beyond. So thank you both again. Thank you for helping us to tell our story, to tell the Mayo Clinic story, Nicole. I think uh, that's the power of community. Our community is that we we each bring this incredible uh, passion and excitement and, and language uh, to this space. So thank you. Nicole, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. It takes a village. And just to know that we're all working together in this space as the African proverb says, you know, if you want to go fast, go along. If you want to go far, go together. together. So I'm glad we're on this journey together. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> That's all for today's episode of the Rise for Equity podcast by Mayo Clinic. 
I'm your host, Nicole Fenoyamhara, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode. We'll see you then.